1: Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.
0: My name's Stuart Wright. This is the BritFlix.com podcast. And today with me, I've got Andy Stark, producer of A Field in England, the new Ben Wheatley movie. Hello, Andy.
1: Good morning.
0: Morning to you. Are you back in the southwest at the moment? Very,
1: so I am. I'm at home in Dorset and it's actually sunny. So it's the first time I've been home for about two weeks. So it's very nice to be here. Have you been just what, pol- polishing the film off and then doing all the, uh, the junkets? Yeah, I, I, just, we, just, we had the film screened in Karlovy which is um, in um, the Czech Republic. Okay. So that was kind of actually the first public screening. Um, and then we came back to do the Brixton premiere. And then they very kindly, but slightly weirdly rang us up and said you've won a big prize you've got to come back <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had to go back to the czech republic on saturday and come back again and do a lot of q and a's but it was very nice it's a very nice very lovely thing to actually win something at a major festival it was quite amazing so indeed
0: indeed yes um, now you, you you've worked on on um the previous three films ben weekly directed haven't you
1: that's right, yeah. yeah.
0: So so there was an there was definitely an ascendancy in terms of production, but it not values, it, in terms of budget. So you've got Down Terrace, which was the, the very entry-level film, and then Kill List and then Sightseers. And I'm guessing the budgets went up with those too.
1: Yeah, I mean, Down Terrace was, was a film that we paid for, Ben and I just paid for ourselves and yeah. Rob Hill, actually. So we all just put a couple of grand in a pot and said, let's try and do something.
0: Is the seven thousand true?
1: Is that is that? That's what. Really you no, know, that is that is what it costs to shoot. I mean, the, the the really dumb thing that we did was put some music in it, that, you know. So we which ended up costing more than the bloody film to clear the rights. So you know that was um, a, that was a classic uh, learning on the job <laughs> rule that we broke. First of all, was never ever. Try and put people's music, licensed to music, in a film because that costs a fortune. Um, but no, the actual, you know, to actually shoot the film cost about six, seven thousand. Yeah. Um, but you know, no one got paid, um, and obviously none of us are that young, and we all knew we all come out of post-production backgrounds. And that film, it kind of happened. That film because Laurie Rose, who's been the DP on all four films, had kind of got to this point where he said, "Look, I can get some kit and a crew." anyone got a script and obviously Ben did and we kind of joined and you know went for a drink one evening said well why don't we just do it
0: the big lesson learned there and I must admit in in a film I'm trying to make that's exactly what I've been told you can't have Sheena as a punk rocker by Ramones so take it out
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um it's you know it's a shame um I mean and then this was, it was kind of interesting because it actually folds back into field in England. So, you know, one of the things again with that was, was it was, you know, Ben was under a three line whip not to have any licensed music in that. And then of course, classically it was, you know, are we, you, when you edit a film, you, you know, you generally put some sort of temp on there. And that's obviously one of the things that we've learned over the, the four films is to try and get your original soundtrack in as early as possible. And again, we've worked with Jim Williams, who's our composer, um, and he sees a friend and you know to, to, to attempt to sort of Ben will you know he'll meet him before we even start shooting the film. And yeah it was
0: interesting that that Ben Ben said that at the, at the Q&A that about that kind of if you listen to some fantastic music that you're very familiar with that you're trying to use as a guide and then you say to a composer can I have that please but slightly different you're you're not going to get that are you?
1: No, you're always, exactly, you just fall in love with it. And, you know, we absolutely did that with Blank Mass, you know, that we put that on for the, the Shearsmith coming out the tent moment. Mm. And we're like, oh, God, that's amazing. <laughs> you know? And it was, um, it's, it's one of those incredible tracks, you know, that I think that moment is so powerful, obviously, because of what Reese does, but also it's because the music is, it's, it's such an amazing track. It's quite uplifting. And I think, and and quite sort, and it's like that's a real moment of enlightenment in the film. And you know, you'd be tempted to put something really doomy and horrible on that, but actually, because of what he does and the music, it turns into this kind of almost like a, it's like a pivotal moment in the film. You know, and I think, and that was something that we just, we all sort of sat there and went, oh god, that's incredible. We can't not have that. So. Thank God the blank mass uh, were very reasonable. <laughs> Let us have the track, which is very nice of them.
0: Indeed, I mean, yeah, I must admit that the uh, for for anyone that's not seen a film um, in England, the the, the the soundtrack that actually goes on the final film is is quite amazing, and it's it it, it, it is almost like chapters in the film itself, isn't it? The,
1: the music, it's not sort of one continuous signature, is it? It's uh, it, no, it, not at all. I mean, I think it all sort of changes in tone and the style of the music you know and that that was, i mean music's obviously a big 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 part of all the films you know and it's it's the the kind of unsettling nature it's certainly something like kill list you know i think you're kind of the sound design and the music is something that obviously ben spends a lot of time on and you know i, I always think kill List is a bit like a kind of leaking boat you know or a listing boat as a film you know you're kind of you're kind of wobbling from side to side. Enough. There's no solidity in the in the end, the last act at all, and that's why it's so unsettling and so disturbing because you just don't know where to root yourself. Did did, did
0: Neil and Michael both have sort of slightly different sound signatures in Kill List? Is that is that right? Is, where were kind of the sound mix that sort of indicated scenes they were in when it was the darker moments, as it were.
1: Kind of. I mean, not. I mean, it's more. I think it's more a case of the world around them changes in the sound mix, you know, and obviously when they're in the tunnels and things like that, you know, I mean, tunnels are just fantastic places to start really playing with sounds and the echoes and the kind of, and again, the kind of, there's a lot of sort of slowed down droning stuff in there, which is, like I say, for me, it's like, it's, there's no, there's no solidity to get your hand to to hand. So, you know, as an audience, you're just kind of unsettled and unnerved and all the way through the film. You know, which is why I think it's such a powerful movie by the end of it, because I know people... You know, there were a lot of kind of third-act deniers, as we started calling them, that were saying, like, you know, oh, what did that... Mean? You know, I love the first two acts, and then it all turned into this. And I, for me, it's kind of flagged all the way through the film, you know, what's going to happen.
0: Well, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of a good film. I mean, that's why I can't wait to watch um, Fielding again, because I know there were signifiers all the way through, and I made notes of stuff, because when I was reviewing it, I often do. So that helped sort of keep track of sort of things that Reese was saying. And there seem to be clues in everything he says as to where we were going. They're not overt. And I must admit, that's what I was saying in the reviewer on the site, that certainly Amy's scripts, certainly the Field England and Kill List, they don't go big on exposition, but certainly what you observe and what happens marries up with where it ends. I don't think for one minute it's sort of (laughs) just, I'll just do this because it'll be fun. It's about
1: the world you create, isn't it? And as long mm. as the rules work in the world that you create, I mean, they are in a mushroom circle and, you know, there is folklore about that. I mean, that is true, you know, that the, the time and space are different. In, well, it's not true, but it might be true. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly true in terms of folklore, The time and space work in different ways inside mushroom circles. And that's kind of the point, you know. That, and, you know, I think the journey is... You know, it's almost an emotional journey as much as a narrative journey, but the narrative journey is, I mean, there's certain things that happen that are kind of strange, like people coming back to life and, you know, kind of things like that. But in terms of where the characters go, it's what they turn into and what they've learned that is actually the story rather than the wandering from A to B sort of picaresque style film, you know, that people might be more used to, I suppose. So, so
0: thinking about the practicalities as a producer, then I mean, you, you, as you as you would have grown with productions to to sightseers, ha, ha, how did you how did you have to change your approach to a field in England compared to say what happened with sightseers?
1: Well, Field Field in England was the first film that we've made completely on our own as a production company. Okay. So that was, again, one of the attractions of doing it, you know, that we, wanted, that we went decided to go back and make something very low budget for lots of reasons. One that we didn't want to. I mean, the worst thing, I think, about production is you can spend your whole life talking about making films rather than actually making films. True. You know, um, and the energy and the the time you spend on it is incredibly draining for everybody. You know, and and it's a it's a fine art to actually actually get get the money together to make a film, which is why films take years in pre-production or, you know, in development. uh, Because you've got a lot of different places to go. So field was, you know, what we were saying was, okay, we're going to do it very quickly, very cheaply. And we know exactly what we want to do and how we want to do it. And it's on the table as a fait accompli. So do you want in or not? And that was obviously by being in charge of it 100%, you get to kind of know a load of stuff that you'll never really party to in other, in other things. And that, I thought that was really important for us as a production company, you know, to try and be across the whole thing.
0: And, and again, so, that, so, so, so when you say it's a phase complete, what you mean is that you arrived with this script and said, "This is the film we want to make." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, and that was, you know, it was a much more done deal in terms of the, of the film. I mean, we, you know, I think we. I oh, mean, obviously, I you know, I don't think anything. We we had kind of comments back on it, but it was it was a very quick process. Whereas usually that could take a year, you know, to get a script to a point where people agree to film it. Yeah. Whereas this was a month, you know. Um, But, you know, the thing that I think was really fascinating was that then, you know, then we can control all aspects of the film. And, you know, we we had the teaser poster for the film sort of about a couple of weeks after we'd shot the film. And, you know, that was us going to Luke and Ken, you know, the sort of Twins of Evil guys to get that kind of artwork we wanted, you know, the music, you know, all that stuff. It was about trying to make the whole thing a package from day one, rather than kind of make the film and then expect someone to come up with artwork and a terrible cover for the video in Sainsbury's. And you know I mean? it was, it was yeah. all that sort of thing of just trying to make the whole thing, you know, kind of unified. And then also this, this ability to be across the release and to sort of say, well, look, you know, we, we, Film 4 have funded this film. Why don't we kind of do something with what, for what, what resources have Film 4 got? Well, they've got a channel, haven't
0: they? Yeah.
1: And they've got a TV station a terrestrial tv station you know that we can use all that stuff because they're the funders of the film and it's you know it, it's it's I mean, it's, quite, it's it's weirdly complicated because obviously it's it's, it's a you know it's quite a, a legal thing as well about what they can and can't advertise so it's it's, it's not as straightforward as it might seem this so, guy all
0: oh, right okay so cross-platform advertising that obviously we, you, what you mean is the sort of stuff we naturally associate with sky or bbc where they tell you everything that's going on there is legal constraints about what you
1: can do. Yeah, no, there are. So you've got, oh, okay. you know, and they have to be, they're very, you know, there's a lot of compliance stuff and things. So you can't just blanket sort of do whatever you want. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. And obviously what, what we've done with, with Field is it's a partnership across the board. So it's a partnership with Picture House for the theatrical. It's a partnership with, with Film4 and 4DVD for the video. So all of us benefit from all these other things, whereas usually you would effectively, you know, you would make your film, and in terms of an indie film like, like we've done before, you're basically, you probably wouldn't have even pre-sold it. You yeah, know, whereas yeah. obviously with a studio movie, you're, you're, the whole process is, is in, in place before you turn over on the cameras. So, you know, with an indie film, you would, you know, you'd hope to get a festival screening and you'd go out there to market with it, and you'd hope someone comes along and writes a check for the film. And then, you know, then you've got that weird process whereby a distributor will put it in the cinemas, which is kind of a loss leader for home video. But the way it works is that your your share of home video pays for all the losses in the cinema, which is a, doesn't really work in terms of low-budget films.
0: No, it doesn't. No, that sounds like... Um, I mean, I've not done any of these contracts yet. The only thing I've done is... is album contracts and they sound very similar
1: yeah it's a similar thing it's it's the cross collateralization isn't it across everything but obviously that the problem is that you know for me as a low in a low budget movies you know these people are making these films and they're not being paid very much money i think people don't realize that you know i mean telly is actually paid better than film in terms of low budget stuff so you know the people we use are used to making adverts or television and that kind of thing and they'd be paid way more money than than we're paying them to make films so it's a kind of a labour of love and we're lucky that we've got a group of people we work with over and over again that are happy to do it. And, you know, we all have a good time making the film and the film was brilliant. It was really great. You know, there was no it was hard, but it was really good fun. And, um, you know, I think that's the thing for me is as, a, as a producer, you know, that we we have to show a return on the film because then we're all on a profit share on the film. So if it makes money, then everyone else gets more money. So that's my kind of responsibility, isn't it? You know, we've got to do that. And this was why we ended up with something like Field, which, you know, okay, with the best will in the world, is a kind of left field avant-garde kind of movie. I mean, I don't think that negates people liking it, but I do think I can see that it's not going to be in 400 springs in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what we need to do is kind of put our best foot forward and, and make it work. And everyone benefits from that. And then we can go out and make another one. Whereas, you know, to kind of just money grab to do it in the traditional way probably means that everyone would have lost money on it, which is no good to anyone.
0: And I think, can as, as, as the reaction from, um, from film four, but I mean, and channel four been, been sort of sounds like this could happen again for other filmmakers or even
1: yourself. Yeah. And no, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really interesting. And I think, you know, the, the, what was, you know, it was the, the number of um, views was, was great. I mean, it was up on their usual, you know, I think it was like three sixty three hundred and seventy thousand 370,000 people watched that film full screen. Jesus. is great. And I think, mm. you know, that the cinema averages are better than we wanted. And I mean, you know, it's all fairly small beer, this stuff. But it, what I would say is you've got to look at the numbers and you can just go on the BFI website and see what things are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the reality of this stuff is, you have to add up the budget of the film, the P and A costs of the film, which is the print and advertising costs. You know, plus the amount of home video these things are going to make, and and, and then you've got, and then you know, the revenue back from a cinema is probably a third of the ticket price. So it's a kind of weird one. It's, it's a very complicated thing, and it, it, it's a, you know, it, it's um, it would be really. I think it's quite weird. I was saying to someone the other day that it's kind of odd that we've been the film has been laid bare in public slightly. You know what I yeah. mean. With all the numbers being everywhere, yeah, it,
0: is, it is. It's interesting because film doesn't do that, does it? Generally, it's very, no, it's, it's I, very I think, closed shop really surprised
1: by how little some of these things make and, and how much some of them cost. You know, and that, but then that's the reality, isn't it? I think you know, in terms of distributors, it's about all the films they distribute in a year, isn't it? You know, yeah. so they could, they could be doing a hundred movies. So it's across all those films, and it's all about. Yeah, whereas you know, obviously, as, as a producer, you're probably working on one or maybe two. It, you know, so you have to make it work. And that's the thing. I think, you know, I, I don't expect every film to suddenly have this model. But I think it's just the reality, isn't there, to, to the UK independent film scene.
0: But isn't it, I mean, as I understand it, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, I mean, Scandinavia enjoys this kind of method, doesn't it? The whole, the, the, the idea of using TV as part of your distribution model because obviously your domestic audience is going to come it's first.
1: Coming. I think it's coming everywhere. I mean, certainly I know in France it's actually illegal to screen a film. You have to have a certain window, and that's kind of part of their constitution. And, you know, and on the one hand, I think that's, that's great. I love the idea of the author's rights in France. I mean, they really care about the artists, you know. It's, it's actually a legal requirement in France that, that the artist who creates the product has a say in it, which is mm. amazing. But I think for for me... The reality of, say, a film like this is you've got to look at, I don't know what would be an equivalent movie, but if you looked at an equivalent movie that had the traditional release pattern, what would happen? And, you know, and what you would get is eight to ten screens, maybe. I'm interested,
0: what did, did Sightseers get? Was that, was that over a hundred? Sightseers was
1: relatively big, yeah, and it went up, actually, in, in screens, which is amazing. I mean, I mean, the biggest successes in kind of indie cinema, you know, certainly in my world are things like submarine and four lions, you know, yeah. that, that really broke out of that sort of 30 screen place and, and went on to kind of make actually a fairly significant amount of money. And that, that you know, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You think, well, you know, how do you, how do you do that? But I think, you know, it's just the reality of it. And that's what we would have got. You know, if you lived in Wales or Scotland or the Midlands, you probably wouldn't even be able to see the film. And I, and for us, obviously we want as many people as possible to see the film, you know, because it's, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, that's the other thing, you know, that ultimately, I, you know, I think it's the best film we've made. It's, and I, you know, I love the film and, it, you know, making having a, a bad film with an interesting release pattern is not very good. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. no good to anyone, is it? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, but I mean, for me that, you know, the film is the most important thing and what we do with it, is you want people to see it, don't you? You want people I must, to get. I it. must
0: admit, Andy, that was because because obviously mo- a lot of the news around the film was the, the sort of para news, as it were, was this idea of the release pattern, and it was kind of like the off off the hand comment would be, yeah, and it's this black and white psychedelic movie, and and there was there was almost like the watch was to see how does this release work as if as if the film doesn't matter in the pro doesn't matter how you release it, like you say, but if the film's not good, then the release pattern won't, won't prove anything, will it? And I think. You need the product to make
1: this. Absolutely. And I mean I think it was um I think it was Aki Kurismaki, wasn't it, who said that you've got no idea whether a film's any good for twenty years. <laughs> you know. Um I kind of think he's probably right. But I you know, in terms of like I say, yeah, I mean I was very much we were always uh, you know, didn't want that to overshadow what a good film is. And I you know, I mean I think you are in danger of that, but again, that's just down to you just got to put your best foot forward, haven't you? You know, if someone wants to write, I mean, it's, and you know, what's the other phrase? Don't, don't read your press, measure it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, hey, you know, I mean, I, I think, you, mean, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty open-minded and, and optimistic about audiences. You know, I think people want to see all sorts of different stuff. And I think they're the same people.
0: That's, I mean, that's, I've noticed that argument. When I've sat in sessions at, saying can at the UK Pavilion, and mm. they talk about audiences and segmenting them and stuff. And they start talking about this idea that there are blockbuster film people and there are indie film people. But as far as I know from all my friends and peers, is that we do both. It's not you know we'll absolutely. go and see well, Iron Man three as much as we'd see a film in England and enjoy them both. I, for... I
1: absolutely, agree. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think it's incredibly arrogant to suggest you know what people want to watch or don't want to watch. I mean, it's and it, you know and and pretty dismissive of the audience, which is ridiculous. I mean, I think. People are, you know, it's just exactly the same. You know, I, I agree. I think people are quite happy to watch very, very different types of cinema. You know, I mean, what it, what it is about is us, kind of. You know, we, we we kind of get the cinema we want to support, don't we? Yeah.
0: Well, well I, I mean, was... there's a great interview with James Gray. You know, did uh, we own the night? Yeah, yeah. He said, um, if you keep feeding people McDonald's, the day you offer them sushi, they're going to go, "What the fuck's that?" <laughs> And I thought it's a great way of describing popular culture because it's it's very true that that you know if, if all you give people is Iron Man three, then then that's what that's what they'll come to expect. It has to be there has to be some diversity in there.
1: Those things are all about us making sure that the people that are able to just give us Iron Man three can't just give us Iron Man three by going to support things that aren't Iron Man three.
0: No, <laughs> but I was going to say yeah. I mean, it was the, I mean, it's interesting that in, in in the wake of um, Lucas and Spielberg giving. There, um, this idea that films will just be tentpole events, and you'll pay fifty dollars to go and watch one. In the same week that um, I think it was the East, the Ridley Scott one, which admittedly was still six and a half million, but in <laughs> Hollywood terms is is a piss in the ocean, and um, and that got worldwide release. And you know, I went, I saw that for seven quid at Hackney Picture House, and yeah, there's no way you, on earth I want cinema to become a fifty fifty dollar
1: tentpole no, event. No, did you see that website with it selling? Um... Eight dcps to um Hollywood stars for <laughs> they put in a cinema in your house and then you get an exclusive DCP you know you can see that story about a couple of months ago really it's like a it's like a love film for really rich people <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable you sort of think that's you know I can kind of absolutely see it you, you sort of pay about five thousand or something ludicrous to kind of get and for your home cinema you know it's a bespoke it's absolutely ridiculous. Can I ask,
0: on, on, on I'll just quickly get one question in before we finish on, on, um, on the sort of scale of the crew. As a comparison between, say, Sightseers and The Field in England, just because they're consecutive films, sure. what was the kind of practical decision you had to make about the, to scale down the crew? I mean, I know the cast was small, and that's because it's, it's a contained site, but in terms of crew you had, was there any... Con-
1: a massive difference between the two, obviously, is locations. I mean, that is, you know, we, what we do, I mean, I co-produce everything with, with Claire Jones and I've yeah. done all the all events films with her. So, so we are kind of across all that side of it. And in fielding, then we had a very tiny production department. We just had our, our you know, our friend Philly, who did it and she did everything. Whereas usually you'd have kind of four or five people there. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing that you, that all the departments had less people in them. Um, you have a, but there's a practicality whereas obviously you know what we did with field was, was make a film in one location so we you know we all go to one hotel we all stay there and we all go to the field every day and we make the film whereas in sightseers obviously I think there was something like over 40 locations well, in four weeks
0: it's a it's a road movie isn't
1: it <laughs> yeah, exactly it's a road movie but you know but obviously moving yeah is very, very complicated. It sounds a ridiculous, but, it, you know, it's things like that, that that you just need to not do. And, you know, obviously Down Terrace was the kind of ultimate film in the, you know, what have we got? Well, we've got a house. And what else have we got? Well, there's these people that live in it. Okay, well, let's just put them in it too, you know. so You know, that was the ultimate kind of pragmatic filmmaking, really, that you, you, you base it around what you've got rather than, say, I want the moon on a stick, you know. And does, I mean, does the... Does, therefore,
0: the script become edited with that in mind? Because, I, I mean, in, in a way, it's like, I, can, I mean, I wrote that in the review that I thought it was, it, it, despite being in a field, which obviously is an open space, it is ostensibly a contained thriller, isn't it, in the truest sense? It's the one location and we watch people descend into their world and get, it get worse and worse, but they don't leave you know, it's all everything. In Crete, the, the stakes get raised in the same place.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think you know that 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 is obviously one side of it. I mean, the other thing that that Ben and I mean Amy in this case do is write for the actors. You know, I think that really helps that you you're not. I mean, that's the thing; is it is just trying to immerse you in the world. And for me, I mean, the success of the film is that you are immersed in that world. And then you know, and, and you don't. I mean, it's the Hitchcock icebox. You know if you kind of come home a couple of days later and think, Oh, bloody, that's just they just they never even left that field. Yeah, but I think when you're watching it, I don't think you get I think you know, hopefully, you're kind of immersed in what's going on with them. And no, without uh, a doubt,
0: no, I mean, it's obviously because I had to write about it, I, I was sort of thinking about it, and that's I was trying to think about it as yeah. much as I could, but yeah, watching it, it didn't dawn on me till the end.
1: But that's the kind of thing that I think is really you know, fascinating and fun about, about the way that you know, that because there is no exposition, you're you're plonked in the world with them aren't you you know as much as they do you know yeah, you I mean, don't know was... any more than they do and that's i think that's the kind of thing that i guess is links most to the films that...
0: from 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 a, and this is a quite a geeky question i suppose but from a writing point of view how 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 did the um, the psyched, well the psychedelic bits look on the page or did they not
1: no, they were all in there. I mean, Amy wrote the whole thing. I mean, this is the first script film that we've done that is exactly as scripted.
0: So, so it, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of that. You know, does it just go yeah, and the, and the screen goes mental or whatever, or does it? Yeah, actually
1: I mean, obviously, no, no, it was kind of you know they they take the mushrooms and they kind of and then something and then this kind of trip thing happens. I'm trying to remember exactly, yeah, okay. but um, I mean, certain those, was... those
0: scenes when they when they, I mean, the bits where they actually stand still, and it's like they're they're frozen, as it were. Is
1: that yeah. scripted or is that a decision? Yeah. No, that is scripted, yeah. Wow. And she put all all that in that's there. That's yeah.
0: really, I mean, that's brave stuff. That's fantastic, that's fantastic isn't
1: yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it's that idea of kind of um, woodcuts, isn't it, and stuff, yeah. you know, that's what you would have. And, and so, no, no, that, that was all in there, yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic.
0: Well, look, sir, um, I've had plenty of your time here, so I'll ask I'll ask my little fun question at the end. <laughs> um and you've already you've already hinted that there might be a clue, but I'll let you. I'll give you the floor. So, if, if if there was a chance to reboot, if you could reboot a film from as a producer, you could take this to Ben and
1: say, "Look, we're doing this. What would it be?" Okay. Well, yeah, he's quite. We've actually literally <laughs> okay, when I when I came back from my running around Europe on field in England, I did have the contract was in the in my on my doorstep. So we've just licensed this book. Which is the original basis of a film called "They Came to Rob Las Vegas"? Okay, which is a kind of 1966, I think, kind of heist movie. Wow, it's not one I know either. Um, oh, it's great! It's really good. It's like um, so. The basic gag is that they rob Las Vegas, funnily enough, and <laughs> drive off the truck with the truck, and then they bury the truck in the desert to hide from the police.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's kind of a bit like Reservoir Dogs meets Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So they're stuck inside this. They're buried under the ground with the Jesus, gold.
0: Jesus, really?
1: And the gold is stuck in the truck. With, and they can't get into the truck, obviously, because it's a, it's a bullion truck.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's a bit like a Russian doll thing where there's people buried within buried within buried. Um, and I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the film's a bit shit, but the idea is great. and there's well, all The different... idea sounds amazing there's an original novel so which is um i think the Fleuve noir which is the sort of french a bit like italian giallos you know okay. they had all these they had the same kind of thing these these kind of thrillers that were sort of you know pop boiler thrillers that were a big series so we just licensed the rights to that to the actual original book mm. which is sort a of shroud of sand which is um and that's you know we're just hoping to re- remake it basically Excellent.
0: Again. Well, there we go. There's literally an there's literally a, prat, a practical answer to that as well as. Lots <laughs> well, of... <maybe. laughs> yeah, watch this space. <laughs> yeah, because I I interviewed the did you know the actor Kevin Howarth? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him and he, his his was magnificent <laughs> seven, but he didn't have any rights to do it. He was more sort of he <laughs> <laughs> he dig the lead role in that. Although he did add, I'm not saying you should redo it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah.
1: I well, look. Las Vegas you probably should redo it. Yes, but no, I think
0: I think if it, I think this is the one thing about rebooks I've never understood. It's like, you know, why make one that's, that's there's a fondness for then than than try to remake one where there is where where it's kind of the
1: ambition was high, but the possibilities were I thought about scanners again the other day. I know oh, I know really? it is but I kind of thought about it.
0: <laughs> oh god, I don't know. Scanners scanners is the one I think for uh
1: Oh no, I know, I know, I know. Me and you would be outraged by it, but I'm not, I'm not so sure it wouldn't make a good remake. No, no,
0: no. There's there's a lot to be done, but it's kind of it's one of those that whole kind of uh, well Cronenberg's whole train of films wrapped in Videodrome. Oh
1: uh, God, okay, yeah, well, it's McGowan for me. You know, he's um, unbelievable in that film. Just amazing.
0: Well, look, sir, I've um, I've used plenty of your time here, and uh, I'm very grateful for that.
1: No problem, it was very nice to speak to you.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, look, good luck with the with other projects that you've got going on and um, hopefully uh, we can pick up a conversation on other film projects in the future.
1: Yeah, cheers. Nice Cheers. Speak to you soon.
0: Indeed, take care, Andy. Bye. Bye. That was uh, me talking to um Andy Stark, um producer of A Field in England and um